0: Making Up Space is proudly supported by Cold Comfort, the ice cream of champions. Handcrafted with local, organic, fair trade, and recyclable ingredients right in the heart of Victoria. (coughs) Vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, and sugar-free options are available. Stop by the small, independent ice cream company with a conscience. Visit them online at www.coldcomfort.ca.
1: This podcast is made out of CFUV 101.9 in Victoria, on the traditional and unceded territories of the Songhees and Wasanish peoples. Hello! You're listening to Taking Up Space, a program highlighting conversations on feminism from an intersectional lens. And I'm your host, Anne Bernice Thomas. Today's episode features conversations on Indigeneity, Indigenous Resilience, and Indigenous Feminism. Our panelists, who each come from different parts of Turtle Island, are here to share their experiences of living as Indigenous persons in present-day Canada. Alright, let's get started. So. Thank you all for joining me for this discussion on Indigenous resilience. Our guests for this episode are Carolyn Grady, Matea Jim, Veronica Martisius, and Lisa Schnitzler. Would you like to introduce yourselves?
2: My name is Caroline Grady, and I am a guest here. I was born and raised in Whitehorse, Yukon, and I'm Southern Toshoni from the Ta'ang Kwachan First Nation. Yeah, I'm also a second year law student.
3: Yes, uh, my name is Veronica Martius, and I just want to acknowledge that I am a guest here on uh, Lekwungen-speaking territory. I am a second-year law student. I come from uh, Brantford, Ontario. That's where I was born and raised. I'm uh, Mohawk of the Six Nations of the Grand River on my mother's side, also British, and on my father's side, I'm Lithuanian and German. I'm very happy to be here, thank you for having me.
4: My name is Lisa, um, I'm a third year student here at UVic, and I'm studying indigenous studies and English. I am also a visitor on this territory. I spent most of my life on Okanagan territory as well, but I'm Cree on my dad's side and French on my mom's from Cree from Meadow Lake, Saskatchewan. Um, my name is Matea Jum,
5: my indigenous name is Christania. I am Kwestenich, I also have ties to DD Dot and Peneliket through my mom's side. I am, I guess I'm a fourth year sociology student, social justice studies minor, and yeah, thank you for having me here, I'm super excited.
1: So. As indigenous persons from all over Turtle Island, can you tell me what being indigenous means to you?
4: I f- oh. <laughs> um, for me, like this has really evolved for me in the past couple of years since I've been at UVic. Um, my dad was adopted in the 60s, so we had little to no connection with my indigenous side, I guess, and um, in high school and in public school I really found that the school would only contact me as an indigenous student to make sure I wasn't failing which really like brought me down in my perspective of what it meant to be indigenous and then when I came to UVic and visiting like the first people's house and taking indigenous studies I realized that a lot of people had the same experience as me um, like being disconnected and I've really learned how wonderful and powerful it is to be indigenous so yeah I'm kind of on that journey right now of reconnecting which I'm really happy about.
3: Uh, Yeah I I, if I could echo that being indigenous to me it's it's very much been a process. I've always known I'm Mohawk. I'm a fifth great granddaughter of Tyandonega Joseph Brandt. Um, Brandford is named after him and I've always been very proud of that connection, my my lineage. But growing up in Brantford, I definitely was exposed to a lot of racism. So it hasn't always meant good things for me to be Indigenous. And I definitely struggled with feeling ashamed, uh, embarrassed. In high school in particular, I didn't really want to engage. There was a group of Indigenous students, because there were a number of students um, at my high school from Six Nations and, and I I was close with them but I never wanted to participate um, in anything going on with the um, Aboriginal Students Club and um, after high school I went off to university and um, I became very interested in criminology and then I started working for victim services of Brant, and a number of my clients were from Six Nations or Indigenous peoples living in in Brantford, and I saw the number of Indigenous peoples who were involved in the criminal justice system as as accused persons, offenders, and um, it just really became apparent to me that there was, that I hadn't learned about all of the reasons why Indigenous people find themselves in in those kind of positions. That was sort of left out of my education. So I went off to do a, a master's degree, and it was right like at the beginning of the Idle no more movement and that was huge for me and i i did my research on the over-incarceration of indigenous people and i really just thought it was important for indigenous people to take up space as legal profession professionals because we were overrepresented as victims and and accused persons but it's so uh, underrepresented as legal professionals so it's kind of what brought me here but i, I like to focus on what i feel inside which is this like intuitive awareness that i am connected to all beings i've that has never been lost on me i've always felt that connection from inside and um i remember when i was a little girl my mom it was like her mission to get a status because her mother had lost her status, my, my nana, when she married my papa. And I just, like, I, I never enjoyed that feeling that, like, this status would somehow, like, confirm who I was and, and legitimize who I was. And I still don't like that because, you know, I'm Mohawk whether the government assigns me that number or not.
1: Awesome answer. What about you, Carolyn?
2: I've always had a connection to my community, I was born and raised in Whitehorse and I spent so much time on the land with my dad and my mom, and going to ceremonies and going to potlatches and all of that and it was always just part of what I had growing up and I'm so lucky to have had that because I know so many people are disconnected from that and it's really been through community in every place that I've been that I've been able to kind of forge my indigeneity through this. So when I went to do my undergrad in Montreal, it was again through the connection with the First People's House there that I was able to meet all of these other indigenous students who were also going through these struggles in the academy and finding out how we could deal with those together and as a community and be so much more powerful than if we were alone. And that's another thing that I found here at UVic and through like the indigenous students in the law school and just like connecting with them and doing things with them is so much more powerful in getting our message heard and being able to just really try to make change in these systems.
1: Anything to add, Matea?
5: I think there are so many ways to be indigenous and um, I think it, took me a while to um, kind of gain the understanding um, because growing up and being a child, I think you, just anybody, you start with yourself, right? And so as a child, what being Indigenous meant to me and my own indigeneity was based on being a First Nations girl. And then as I started to get older and have different experiences and meet different kinds of indigeneity and different peoples coming from different places and really finding solidarity within being an indigenous person. The term indigenous has definitely grown to and expanded on its meaning, I guess. Um, So there's definitely, within the term indigenous, there's, I think there's a lot of power within that word. There's solidarity, there's community, there's identity there's also a lot of um, history that goes along with that as well, I think. I think everybody has mentioned kind of how just colonial histories has affected them and has really been a part of their journey in finding their own indigeneity. And I guess I can definitely see that with what indigeneity means to me and yeah.
1: All right, so can you explain how indigeneity is present in your life and work?
5: I think because a lot of my own indigeneity is based in community and family and my teachings and things like that, indigeneity shows up in actually a lot of amazing ways. My daughter, for example, is on a U10 girls soccer team made up of all indigenous girls and many of the girls on this team, they're in the language revitalization program for Sinchathan in the peninsula, so it's amazing to see these girls, and we get to see them every week at practices and on the field, and, and many of these girls are family too, so you just see them all the time and it's It's just amazing to be with each other as family, as community, cheering these young people on as they give it their all, and like yelling on the field, you know, just it, Run! (laughs) Or um, whatever, and it's been a great place of learning for me as well. So that's one of the ways that my indigeneity just comes up in daily life, and like I said, a big part of what being indigenous to me is, is my community, and my family, and Being able to see different teachings come out in different ways in, I guess, not just in traditional places or in the home, but out in, I guess, off reserve in the greater community and outside of school. I guess that's where it's most present for me, which is an amazing
3: experience. Thank you for touching on the positive, Matea, and I would just like to express that for me, I'm the co-chair of our Indigenous Law Students Association at the law school and we have an incredible group and I'm so grateful to be among all of my wonderful strong indigenous student body we're like a family and for me being so far away from home that's been wonderful and even though these injustices are continually being perpetuated against our relations the strength and the commitment and the vulnerability that this group of people has shown has just been such a source of strength for me and my indigeneity, and and we we've, we've come together and we've we held a we held a sit-in on Monday and uh, a protest at the law school because we think it's important to bring the protest back to the law school and to let people know that we're here, and um, when. The Administration, you know, wants to bring in TRC lessons and stuff like that. like that what you know what what we're learning isn't external to the Law school. like there is an, a community of Indigenous students at the Law school who are being impacted by what's happening, but that we're we're here to to challenge the status quo and and to do what we can to to change things. Um, that's our responsibility to send that message to other. Indigenous folks, Indigenous youth in particular, aspiring lawyers. So, and and I'm also very grateful that uh, UVic Law has a co-op program, and right now I'm doing a co-op term with the Indigenous Law Research Unit. And I've had the opportunity to travel to three different locations and work for, or work with, I should say, about five different nations here out on the West Coast and to go into community has has just been wonderful and all the lessons that I have learned from all the people in these various communities has has been very heartwarming and and it continues to to stoke my fire so I keep going
4: Yeah. yeah I think once I started taking indigenous studies courses and learning the things that I didn't learn in public school I was like shocked and couldn't look away from it. So it kind of like everything I did from that point, I wanted to do um, to like help like my people and all indigenous people um, with that mindset of having a good mind and a good heart as well. So like at the moment, some projects I have going on, I revoked the name of Joseph Trech from the residence hall here. Joseph Trutch was a very racist man in the 1800s. He minimized land reserves here by like 90%. And then now I'm working on renaming Joseph Tretch Street. And in that you have a lot of um, like negative pushback from people who are often like white settlers who don't want change that way. And like I found that with like just even on my Facebook with the uh, Colton Bushy and Tina Fontaine, just people saying that these cases aren't about race and that they're just like isolated incidents. And it's really difficult for me and for all of us, I'm assuming, because we know that it's a systemic thing. And yeah, so I guess the best we can do is keep sharing our perspectives and helping people learn. I try my best to do that, even when it's really hard.
2: Yeah, so I guess indigeneity comes up every day in the law and there's been a lot going on in the past few weeks that has been incredibly difficult for indigenous people to deal with with like the with tina fontaine and colton bushy and all of that that's been going on and being at the law school through that has been pretty difficult and knowing that in my life and the choices i'm making are leading to me in some ways perpetuating the system and I really don't want to be a part, of it, a part of that and I want to think about how I could change it and whether or not that can be done from the inside or not and those are questions that I've been struggling with for a really long time and I don't know if it can be done. Um, I've been speaking to Veronica quite a bit about like harm reduction as a model for being inside law and knowing that we have to change it from the outside because the system will never change itself. But in the meantime, there's so much we can do with the knowledge from inside that we can then try to minimize the damage until we're able to change it. So yeah, that's currently how indigeneity is present in my life, but it changes pretty often as well mm-hmm. and it comes up everywhere.
1: So. Wow. So yeah, um, a few of you have mentioned the names of Colton Boushey and Tina Fontaine. Just for the listeners who might not know about these cases, uh, could you give a short explanation on both the case of Jared Stanley in the death of Colton Bushy and the case of Raymond Cormier in the death of Tina Fontaine?
2: Yeah, maybe Veronica can help, I don't know. Like, I can do it too. <clears throat> um, yeah, so in the Stanley trial, he was acquitted of murdering an indigenous man who was on his property, and there's a lot of discourse that's gone on about the case and what truth is, and what the evidence is, and what people have told other people that has happened, and it just doesn't seem to add up. And the fact that he was acquitted and found non-culpable of this murder, which is what it was, even though his defense was kind of shoddy, It just doesn't make sense, and it's really difficult in a, like, coming from a law perspective, thinking about how that was able to happen, and Tina Fontaine is a similar case. She was found murdered a few years ago, and just recently in the Cormier trial, he was also acquitted or found non-culpable. jury found
3: him not guilty.
2: Yeah, not guilty of murdering her. Mm -hmm. And again, evidence is an issue, and we can choose to believe what we want to about it, but I think that both of these have highlighted how Indigenous people are just not represented within the legal system and continue to be perpetuated as either like victims or perpetrators no matter what, and we're just not getting justice. And that our
3: lives are disposable. Um, in particular with um, the Gerald Stanley case, it's alarming because not only was he found not guilty of second-degree murder, he was found not guilty of manslaughter by a jury, and the jury is not obliged to give any reasons. And so now you have a, a decision that sends a message that you can kill an indigenous person and claim that it was an accident and not be found criminally liable uh, without any consequences it's it's really scary
1: thank you for clarifying all right listeners it's time to take a short break when we return the conversation will continue and we'll delve deeper into the intersections and the intersectionality within indigeneity Coming up is some information on the Stolen Sisters March, an event that brings attention to cases like Tina Fontaine and other missing and murdered Indigenous women across the country.
6: For many people, Valentine's Day is about heart-shaped boxes of chocolates and roses. But for others, it is a time to remember the thousands of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada. The Stolen Sisters Memorial March is held yearly around Valentine's Day to raise awareness of this national crisis and honour the women, girls, and two-spirit people who have been stolen. In terms of the number of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada, there has been a wide range of estimates. While a 2017 report by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police suggested that the number was approximately 1,200 in the past three decades. Indigenous organizations, such as the Walk for Justice Group, suggests it is closer to 4,000. Patricia Hadju, the former Minister of the Status of Women, reported that a lack of formal inquiry has made it very difficult to obtain an accurate number. If you're interested in learning more about this topic, there is a CBC webpage called Missing and Murdered, the Unsolved Cases of Indigenous Women and Girls. In order to get a more clear representation of the scale of this crisis, a national inquiry on the topic was announced by Justin Trudeau's Liberal government and is reported to be completed by the end of 2018. The Stolen Sisters Memorial March is a national event that began in Vancouver's downtown Eastside in 1992 after the body of Cheryl Ann Joe was found. Since then, it has been held across Canada in cities such as Edmonton and Calgary. In 2017, the March in Victoria was held on February 12th by Jessica Dawn, Desiree Smiley, Bernice Camano, Kelly Aguira, and Nancy Kinyawakin. It was located on Pandora Avenue and Quadra on the unceded traditional territories of the Lekwungen communities, Songhees, and Esquimalt First Nations. During the event, there are prayers, songs, and food is shared. If you're interested in participating in the march, More information is being posted on the Facebook page Stolen Sisters Memorial March Victoria. If you decide to go to the march, it is crucial to remember that only Indigenous women will be at the front of the march, but others are welcome to follow behind them. In addition, photographs are not allowed without the permission of the people in the pictures. Finally, signs of the missing and murdered are only to be held by their family members.
0: Break free from boring ice cream with Cold Comfort. Cold Comfort is a small, independent ice cream company right here in Victoria, with over 400 different handcrafted ice cream flavors inspired by everything from local fruit to local beer. Curiously flavored and locally made, they've been doing whatever the hell they feel like since 2010. Head on down and treat your taste buds today. Check them out at www.coldcomfort.ca.
1: Welcome back to Taking Up Space. I'm your host, Anne Bernice Thomas. This episode features conversations on indigeneity and indigenous resilience all across Turtle Island. I'm joined by Carolyn Grady, Matea Jim, Veronica Martisius, and Lisa Schnitzler. Okay, so I was uh, was wondering, to continue this conversation, um, indigenous feminism, What does that mean to you? And how does indigenous feminism appear in each of your lives?
5: Well, I think what best explains this for me is just how I see uh, indigenous feminist kind of ideas or things playing out in my life. So just as an adult, I've been lucky enough to have so many just strong indigenous women as mentors and that, which I think a big part of feminism is, is to have a sense of solidarity among women and these positive relationships to help each other grow. And having these relationships with um, these Indigenous women, whether they're my mentors or my family or both, I guess, has been amazing just to see their strength and have their encouragement. And I believe that's a big part of indigenous feminism, and it's just amazingly impactful, I guess.
1: Thank you for sharing. Lisa? Um, for
4: most of my papers, when my professors say you can write about anything, I end up writing about indigenous women and all different kinds of things within that realm, and throughout my life, I've learned so much about the strength and intelligence that indigenous women hold, and I really look up to the women who are leading those acts of resistance, because they, they have been on the front lines, and they have been doing so much to protect their nations, and I think that everything we can do to highlight that and highlight the importance of indigenous women is so important, because in the past, research has been really detrimental to that, and In the past, feminism has been primarily like white women, so I think we're at a time where it's becoming more intersectional, and we can start valuing all different kinds of women. And for me, that's focusing on indigenous women and the role they can play in their communities and what we can learn from them as well.
2: Yeah, I definitely agree with both of what you guys are saying. And again, I've been so lucky to have so many wonderful women as role models in my life and my grandmas and all of that and yeah just learning about these and learning about all of the ways that indigenous societies across Canada did things differently from what we're currently doing and how women were valued as decision makers and spokespeople and like across Canada we valued women in varying ways and like it nothing is ever perfect, and we can always like change with the future, and with our current ideas and values, but I think that's a lens that is really valuable to look at feminism from, is just the power that women did have and can have, and the impacts that they can have on community, while at the same time not tearing down men in any way, but like Realizing the harms that the heteropatriarchy has had on women Mm. of, like, all women, basically. And intersectionality is super important. And just, like, coming together as women who have been impacted by this heteropatriarchy and settler colonialism and find a way to kind of move forward with that knowledge in hand.
3: Yeah, um, we have to build each other up, not tear each other down, call each other in, not call each other out. Um, And this conversation just reminds me of my great-grandmother, Ethel Brandt Montour, and I've pulled up a picture to assist me here. But back in the 1960s, there was this commission on bilingualism and biculturalism. Um, and this was in response to a group of Francophones who felt that they were going to lose their language. So this, this commission uh, went on a cross-country tour, and the commission listened to submissions, and, and, and basically it was about whether Canadians felt it was important to speak both French and English. And my great-grandmother stood up and reminded all of them that not everyone in Canada was French or English, and for me, I, I I carry that with me. I hold on to that because I think, my God, like that. <laughs> she's so brave, like back in the 1960s, to stand up and remind everyone that, you know, this is um, a multi juridical society um, and with many Indigenous nations and languages, and, and to remind them of that, whether or not, any, I don't think anything much came out of it, but carry that
1: with me. Great. Well, how do these teachings and viewpoints shape your understanding of gender? From
4: what I've learned in some of my courses, Indigenous peoples continue to practice traditional ways that didn't have that strict gender binary that we we have today. So I think it's worth just bringing up that there are like two-spirit peoples who have been totally underrepresented in research and all of that who are also impacted the same way that women and indigenous men are but it's taught me that women can do great things that men can do and in the past people had to learn both ways of like there were things that men did and things that women did but if someone couldn't do it the woman would step in and just like finding that equality within traditional teachings and not following that like heteronormative binary that we unfortunately, have in our society today.
5: I think because so many of the... I do have so many strong women in my life and mentors and things like that, definitely living in a hetero heteropatriarchal society, it's the violence against them or the struggles that they have gone through have definitely informed, like, my growing understanding of gender, just because... You know i've grown up seeing these strong women overcome these amazing things and a lot of the issues that i had seen within my community were i guess really based on issues of not masculinity but uh i guess toxic masculinity so that definitely led me to as i got older to have a focus on understanding the historical causes of this toxic masculinity that was in the community But even then, as I grew some more and looked into it, I realized I was taking for granted how strong these women were and what they were dealing with. So that kind of shifted my focus back over to Indigenous women because just because they had gone through that, or I guess were quotation marks strong enough to get through that, that doesn't mean they should have in the first place. And so it's definitely... um kind of been an interesting journey just to look at what how gender has been built for indigenous people or has become what it has and I'm really optimistic for the work that is happening with indigenous gender right now and just looking at indigenous masculinities and femininities and where that's going and it looks really positive so that's super exciting I think
2: yeah I think that what I really want to focus on is just raising up our women and raising up our two-spirited people who have been brought down by the system and really think about how much they can add to what we're doing now and how they also have to be a part of it. And I think it's really easy to see certain movements as very masculine and like put forward by a lot of men, and I think we just always need to think about bringing women back into the forefront and two-spirited people
1: because those are values that we can't really afford to lose and yeah. Amazing, uh, so we're going to take a quick break and we'll continue when we get back. Uh, coming up next, Matea has a bit more information on the historical relationship between the Songhees and the Wasanic people and the white settlers that began trespassing on their land long ago. Stay tuned.
5: I would like to start off by acknowledging the beautiful unceded territory of the Lekwungen-speaking and Hoseinich peoples, who are and have been the caretakers of this land since time immemorial. I would also like to start off by introducing myself, Kwesteniet Denesnet Um uh, My name is Kwesteniet and I am Hoseinich. I also have ties to Penelicate and Didida through my mom and my name is, it comes from my mother's side as well. I just wanted to share a little bit of knowledge about local Indigenous people that has been shared with me just to give you guys a bit of an introduction. I feel this is important to acknowledge this because I'm not an elder, nor have I been elected to speak on behalf of anyone. This is just me giving my voice and sharing some of the knowledge that has been shared with me. So first off, I'd like to kind of explain what unseated means. When I acknowledge the territory, I also acknowledged it as being unseated. I'd like to read the translation of the Douglas Treaty, which is the local treaty here that was signed on Mount Doug. What I'm going to read to you is an excerpt of the translation that was done by John Elliott. We are the Saanich people. We are the original people of this land. This is our homeland. This land, our homeland, is a gift from the high honored, most respected one, Creator. Creator made all of this our homeland. And in making all of this, our homeland and the creation made our laws and beliefs and our sacred teachings of life. Creator wants us to remember these sacred teachings of life. Creator marked our homelands with monumental stones for us to remember his presence on these lands with our ancestors of the past. Many years ago, in the moon of the frogs, there was a gathering on top of Poklos. There was a meeting with James Douglas, the leader of the newly arrived white people. We were talking about new beginnings on our land together with the white people. A new good beginning together with the white people and the Huisenich people. And there we would point out the extent of our Saanich homelands, the lands that our people used for all time for hunting and setting our reef nets, where we harvested food and medicines and fished. The places the Creator, Khaelts had made our laws, sacred teachings of life, and our ways. We were given some gifts to acknowledge that we met and to make a new beginning. Because there was a threat made by the Husseinich on the new fort in Victoria, there were crosses marked on a paper to signify a sacredness to the meeting, and how the newly arrived people recognized our responsibilities to the land, and that with this new beginning that we would live on these lands with respectful relationships with another the Husainich and the white people. This was to make a new beginning because there was a threat on the Fort Victoria by the Hosseinich. So this was a translation done by uh, John Elliott on the the Douglas Treaty. There's also a translation in Lakwangan as well. So as you can see that this, this translation of the Douglas Treaty doesn't exactly match what has been set out in the English version. And when this treaty was signed, there was actually a dispute uh, between the Husaynich and the settler people. And the understanding from the Husaynich people was that this treaty was to right a wrong, and that they weren't selling the land that they were responsible for, but rather that settlers were righting a wrong and giving gifts and trying to make a making a peace offering rather than a settlement i suppose that's what the word unseated is carrying when we are acknowledging territories that this land is still the responsibility of the local nations and is still their territories Mm. I believe as indigenous peoples we are in a time of resurgence I have been lucky enough to be connected to many people doing such good work in the local communities well I feel I have a vested interest in indigenous resurgence I feel like it's important to have that sense of identity and there I feel like there's this downplay of the importance Importance of culture or the value of it of indigenous culture and knowledge it's like oh we have things that are so much better now why do you need that it's like because there is like a great amount of value in indigenous knowledge relationships and yeah just our community there's so many great things there and it's something I want my daughter to be a part of and to have and to be able to connect to that. Because I think the things that we have held on to through the process of colonization are the things that have kept us going as a people. Those teachings are the things that help you heal from the effects of colonization. Those gifts that we are given from our family and our community are the things that keep us strong. And I find that that's really important I also feel like there's a great need for diversity in the way of doing things. And I really do believe in like the indigenous understanding of connection to land and just worldviews as well. I think they're really important and I think there's a great deal of value
1: there. All right, welcome back to Taking Up Space. I'm your host, Anne Bernice Thomas. In this episode, I'm joined by Carolyn Grady, Matea Jim, Veronica Martisius, and Lisa Schnitzler to speak about indigeneity and indigenous resilience. So uh, the last thing we were talking about or heard about uh, was the history of the Songhees and Hispanic territory Uh, is really, it was really interesting and Matea, you talked a, a little bit about displacement, and I'd love to like, look into that more. So really, like all of colonial history uh, involved white settlers displacing indigenous folks from their traditional lands and setting up the reserve system, uh, which is still in place today. Uh, so how has this type of displacement, uh, the reserve system, and living off or on the reserve affected your community and personal life as an indigenous person? Uh, Matea, let's start with you.
5: Well, I grew... Up on the reserve I think I didn't live off reserve until I was 10 so actually I had an, um, an amazing time uh, growing up on reserve just to be and it wasn't because it was reserve. obviously it was more just because I was with family and community and we were very free as children just to like we would go to the beach we would go bike riding we would just explore in the forest and it wasn't we were very free children just because there was always an adult or a family member somewhere close by and you know if you were doing something that you shouldn't have been you know they would come and tell you not to do that or like your parents would know by the time you got home so um it was an amazing experience and definitely that has really I guess those experiences have shaped my experience of being displaced from the traditional lands because right now I'm also I'm living on campus which is the traditional territory of the Huisenich and the Lekwungen speaking people and even though I am in my traditional territories, it's a much different experience than when I was living on reserve. I was next door was where lived my uncles and then my other uncle and then my other uncle, then my aunt, and then at the top was my grandma. And like my daughter would just, she would just go over to, you know, her cousin's house and they would play. And I was never worried about her. And like, she would always just call and it's just a, an amazing sense of community. But now that we're out, out here, you definitely feel that displacement much more. Just because, yeah, even though I am in my traditional territories, it's like, it's a a totally different experience from being away from community. And I guess that's where I have felt it the most. I think that the displacement has definitely affected my community and just like our ways of being and ways of learning and ways of knowing and ways of just doing. Just because like, whether it's hunting or traveling or doing this where there's just like such a disconnect and so many knowledges that aren't being passed down as they would have before, just because there's limited opportunity to be able to engage in those types of things. And some of it is just like not being able to engage with the land as we used to, whether that's gathering foods or medicines and stuff. And like that, I think that definitely affects my community. Quite a bit, just because it's just doing those processes where you're building those relationships and building those knowledges, and just sharing and not having that because of the disconnection from traditional lands has, I think, definitely
4: affected them in a really big way. I think I'll let somebody else take it from here. Growing up, I I didn't really know where my dad's side of the family came from and I've, I've still never been to that area where his some of his family still lives. So it's been hard for me um, not having that connection to land in a specific community, but as I've grown up, um, I've started having more connections to place and finding smaller communities like within the campus and calling like that's my community but it is it is hard because um, like when you apply for different things as an indigenous person they'll ask you for letters from your community or proof of your community um, and that's been hard for me because I, I do think I have a community within campus and within the people that I know but it's it's just not the traditional community I guess which is a story for a lot of people too so it's I guess just the shifting definition of what community is
3: mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Thank you for sharing. So, Carolina, what's your perspective of this as someone who grew up in the North?
2: Growing up in the North, I think that I had a bit of a different experience than a lot of other people because we do still have a lot of empty space and land. And it's not, like, not all of it is held by indigenous peoples but, and like most of it is not, but there is just still the space, and I grew up fishing with my dad, and he lived on reserve. It's kind of a different type of reserve than a lot of other people see, but being able to be out on the land and go hunting and fishing and just really spend time there has been so valuable to me, and that is where a lot of my community was rooted. And again, like, my aunts lived around there and we were just always able to be around family and community and yeah i think that it's really valuable in having moved away from the north like i always plan on going back but to build up these communities in all of the places i go and be able to be with people who make me feel good and know the issues that are there and that you don't really have to explain things to and just be able to know that even though we're all coming from different places and different experiences, that building community doesn't have to be based on like necessarily who you are specifically. And speaking to like displacement from our lands, I think that the North has seen a lot of effects from development across the world and development even in the north with mining and industry. And that's really difficult to kind of balance whether, like the money that that brings into communities and whether that's worth the money or whether we should be thinking about other options for development and just really thinking about what that means to different people and how other people have really different needs and don't have the privilege to be against development in a lot of ways. So yeah just displacement is a really difficult thing to think about in my context and there's a lot going on.
3: Yeah it's um, definitely had a huge impact on on me and my family I think. The Haudenosaunee Six Nations were displaced after the American Revolution. After the American Revolution um, the well, it was the Five Nations and then it was the Six Nations when Tuscarora joined in, but they moved up and they were deeded a tract of land along the Grand River um, in, in what is known as Upper Canada, at the time it was Upper Canada. So six miles on either side of the Grand, I think this was in like 1784 or something like that. And now it's been like whittled down to the six nations reserve like growing up in branford which is just outside of six nations i mean we had our connections to, to to the reserve i would go with my family we would go visit my auntie flo or my aunt rita but i always felt this this disconnect real and imaginary i always felt like if i wanted to go back i don't know if i would be welcomed but then you could you it's hard, to, it's hard to explain, but I think a lot of people who have grown up in that area but off reserve have felt disconnected and maybe that we wouldn't necessarily be welcomed back in because of government policies that have split us all up and have stripped us of our identity and it's created a lot of tension among in- Indigenous people, which is really unfortunate. But I've always felt a connection to, to the Grand River, and I've always really enjoyed my time down by the river. And so I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have that. And, and like I said, I've got my family, uh, Indigenous law student family here at, at UVic, but always certainly very happy to go back home. I always feel that calling to head back to the river.
1: So we've all, uh, you've all mentioned, you know, community and mentors and family. And um, almost all of your other your answers, So just to like really delve into that one as well, I I really would love to know, what role does community play in healing and thriving in a settler colonial society?
4: I think coming from, we're all working within like Western institutions, so I think it's really important to have some sense of community Um, within the school. For me it's like at the First Peoples House, I was working in there the other day and this girl I've never met before started a conversation and immediately we got into like our background and just talking about like how in some scenarios like for me I have lighter skin so either I'm too white in some indigenous settings or too indigenous in some white settings so it's just like it normalizes the experience that other people have as well which I think has been really helpful for me because it doesn't make me feel like i'm alone in any situation and also the community here the elders and residents like blow my mind every time i speak to them they really help me guide my pathway to like really valuing my indigenous identity and like healing and surviving and seeing it
2: in such like a positive light I think the role of community is super important and yeah i've touched on it before but like it's so important to connect to the people who you're around regardless of if it's your community or not you can always build community and i think that like in the past couple days we've been having conversations with other law schools across canada about what we want to do in reaction to certain things that have happened and how we want to build each other up across Canada and even building those larger communities has been so positive and important and yeah, we, it's just so important to realize that we can't do this alone and that anybody who has been impacted by settler colonialism needs to work together to dismantle this system and realize that it's not serving us and this is not a system that was built for us and we need to change that together and that's the only way we're going to be able to do it is if we all work together and share our resources and share our learning and our knowledge and move forward together.
5: I think within my own community, a big part of surviving and healing and thriving, I think there's definitely a big role for just cultural practices and just different f- familial ties and I just uh, the thing that I really did want to concentrate on was just cultural practices because I've heard so many times a lot of people well like why do you still do that there's no point in it or there's the what is the worth of still doing that like live in the now you know but I just want to reiterate that there is so much value in that and that it does play a big part in surviving and healing and thriving and living and there are so many traditional things, definitely within my community, that play a big role in all of these things. And yeah, that I just wanted to say that it does have value and that's a big part of it. And there is so much to be learned and understood from these practices
3: this is not just a settler colonial society. We as indigenous people don't just exist within this settler colonial society. Our societies are vibrant, our indigenous communities, our indigenous nations, they're vibrant. And we can't, I don't want that to be lost on anyone. And I think for me as a, like a biracial person, it's a, I see myself as a bridge builder to, to bridge that gap we are all living on this land together. And i um, just gonna say uh, my involvement with the Indigenous Law Students Society, uh, or association, I should say, <laughs> at uh, the Faculty of Law has really been instrumental in, as I move down this path, to not forget that, and that there is tremendous value in Indigenous law And my work with the Indigenous Law Research Unit in in helping communities realize and revitalize their laws is going to be so important moving forward. Yeah, to recognize that, yeah, this isn't just a settler colonial society.
1: That's a great point, Veronica. Well, before we start to uh, head out, is there anything you'd like to leave the listeners thinking about? Any last comments or questions or thoughts to keep them percolating?
2: I guess what I want to say is that like I'm not an expert and every single day of my life I continue learning and I'm learning from everyone I talk to and the conversations here we're all bringing up such good things and realizing that there's not one approach to this and that we all have to do what feels right but in that all have the same goal of trying to get the system changed and get it working for us in really important ways and I think that The most important thing is just to learn from each other and continue learning in every aspect of our life.
5: Yeah I wanted to definitely acknowledge um, the diversity here on the panel and just the diversity of indigeneity that is out there and just the different works that people are doing and how they do it and um, just how we incorporate this in our daily lives and I just wanted to show my appreciation to all of you for your words that you've shared and your experiences for sure and definitely say that I appreciate the work that you're doing
3: the path that you're on, I guess. You know what yeah um, we are diverse, but we also have to recognize that we have so much more in common than we do different. And I mean this is the work and we can only do this work if we allow ourselves to be who we are, to speak our truth, to listen to one another, to take the time to understand each other. I personally like, I don't think I've ever been asked any of these questions before, and I just want to
4: say thank you to everybody for getting to know me. Um, one thing I wanted to add for for the viewers, or uh, not viewers, or, <laughs> <laughs> I wish, um, audience, um, just some resources about some of the things we talked about, some films that I've really enjoyed. Christine Welsh made a film called Finding Dawn in which she talks about missing murdered indigenous women, particularly from the Lower Mainland, and follows a specific story of Dawn. Christine Welsh was a professor here, and she's an elder in residence now, and it is such an important story, and it's still relevant, even though it was made quite a while ago. Um, another film that talks about the over-incarceration and under-protection of indigenous men is called Two Worlds Collide, and both of those films are on the National Film Board website for free and they're kind of short so it'll be good and yeah i'd also like to thank everyone on the panel um i'm feeling pretty emotional right now because like i too i guess people don't take the opportunity to ask you these questions um in normal spaces so thank you
1: and that concludes our episode for today Uh, Thank you so much to Carolyn, Matea, Veronica, and Lisa for coming in to speak with us. If you want to know more about the Indigenous Lost Research Unit, uh, please head to www.uvic.ca. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to Taking Up Space. Rate us, leave us a comment, or review the show at www.cpvpodcast.com or wherever else you get your podcasts. This program was produced by myself, Alba Clevenger, Ronman Lawrence, Kevin Hammond, Melanie Lum, and Max Collins. Our theme music is composed by Arcade Palette. This episode was created by CPV's production team, and if you want to be a part of making amazing programs like this one, head to cpv.ca to learn more. Taking Up Space wouldn't be possible without the generous support of our friends at Cold Comfort and the Community Radio Fund of Canada. Today we'll leave you with some poetry from Shaylee Robinson. Some of these poems contain mature content, specifically surrounding sexual assault. I'm Anthony Thomas. This is taking up space, and we'll catch you next time.
7: Heit squeil nisieya, entha Shaylee tinetsa likesin atztaqa, heitsha siem lekongen tamuq heitzeqa lekongen mustimur. My name is Shaylee Robinson. I come from the Chieftain Thomas family of the Laiaxan First Nation, and I'd just like to take a moment to thank the Lekwangan people and their beautiful land as we're here on their unceded territory today. I have been doing spoken word poetry for about seven years now, and I'm the executive director of the Victoria Poetry Project. Uh, We have shows every single Wednesday at Cafe Fantastico in Quadra Village. Check us out. You can find us on Facebook or online. And I'd like to share a few poems with you. So this first piece is called Survival Guide, and it's something that I wrote uh, following a very brutal sexual assault. Know that it's okay to not be okay. Know that what they did to you and failed to do does not define you. Know that it's okay to address your black eye before someone else can. Know that you can lie about it. Know that you can apply layer after layer of concealer until you don't recognize the face in your mirror if you want to. Or you can put their blissfully unaware comfort beside your pain and be honest and remind them how this place is unsafe. Go to the ocean and weep. Let the salt in the air find the salty pain in your tears and sweep it back to the water. Do not fully shrink into yourself. Do not let them dictate how you feel. Do not let them make you hate your body. It is not her fault and it is not your fault. Find the ways you can love yourself. Paint your nails. Bright blue or sharp black. Eat what makes you feel good. Care for your skin instead of punishing it. Wash your hair and imagine the shame leaving you with every scrub. Call both of your grandmas. Let them hug you and bake you cookies. Watch trashy TV if it makes you smile. Write poems, even if they're not rife with metaphors. Text your friends back, even if you just say, it's hard right now. They're there for you. Remember that you have not lost your autonomy that they have not taken your body from you, that however you feel is valid. And one day, it will hurt less and less, and you can forget if it helps, but you don't have to." So this next piece is based on a true story. This actually happened to me when I was working at Starbucks downtown at Yates in government. I had a, a very ignorant American tourist ask me where she could buy totem pole seeds, and so later that night, this is uh, the poem I wrote in response. She asked me where she could buy some totem pole seeds, Thinking I was dreaming, I asked her to repeat herself, and again she said, "Darlin', do you know where I could find some of them totem pole seeds?" Whoa. This woman was for real, and as she would learn, she had asked a very angry Native woman. So there we were, the Starbucks barista and the American tourist, the indigenous activist and the indigenous collector. Luckily, I'd already dealt with a lot of racism at the age of 19, so I thought on my feet. I grabbed one of the many tourist maps we kept behind the counter and traced a route for her, a long and winding one which ended at the Ross Bay Cemetery. I didn't have enough time to explain to her the complexities of our poles, that they don't just grow from the ground carved and painted, or how a cedar tree is chosen in the ceremony that takes place with its spirit, or the hours of connecting with ancestors that takes place throughout the journey of carving, or no, you ignorant motherfucker, they're not totem poles. Totem isn't even a word we use on the West Coast. That comes from the dodoms of the Anishinaabe. We have house posts and ceremonial poles and so many more that I can't even explain because genocide took away my right to grow up immersed in my culture. She asked me where she could buy totem pole seeds, and I redirected her to the Ross Bay Cemetery, hoping she would connect with the people buried there who were like her, fellow rich lovers of Indians like Sir James Douglas and Emily Carr, and learn from their mistakes. So this last one is really difficult. It uh, it discusses my own experiences with sexual assault as well as my mother's um, and just the reality of missing and murdered indigenous women in Canada. It's called uh, Shades of Red. Where I come from, Slovene, life givers, if you will, are the most sacred and integral part of a community. For millennia, we have held our women up and kept them safe, but now, with genocide on our heels, this isn't always the case. My first memory I was six years old, sitting with my younger sister in the stairwell of our home. We were watching our mum and the man I then called Daddy chasing her. Daddy had a baseball bat and Mommy clutched a knife, screaming for her life. And years later, I learned that afterwards, he dragged her up the stairs by the hair on her head and abused her in more ways than one behind their closed bedroom door. All my childhood, I grew accustomed to freezing in fear every time a man raised his voice around me, so much so that one day, my then-boyfriend, my first love, a man who loved and respected me far too much to ever hurt me or give me cause to fear him, raised his voice to try to motivate me to do my homework. He did nothing wrong, but I was so fearful that I couldn't speak or be touched, I could only cry and try to block the flashbacks. One thousand and seventeen. From 1980 to 2012, 1,017 women and girls whose blood flows from this land have been taken. At least, that's what the RCMP tells us. In the last six years, the numbers have only increased. Because my blood is that of these territories, I am four times more likely to be murdered than any woman in this room, any woman in this country whose hearts don't pump the same shade of red as mine. In 2014, they told us that indigenous women are more likely than any other to die at the hands of people categorized as acquaintances, and this category includes friends. Six years ago, when I was 18, my mother confessed she has never truly known who my birth father is. If not the man that walked out on us before I was old enough to remember his face, then it is the man who date-raped my mother, a man she called friend that night who she thought was just making sure she got home safely. She was 20 years old. The shame and guilt in her face riddled her unneeded apology. It caused me the most anguish and heartache I have ever felt because I still feel it today. She was conditioned to believe it was her fault, that she should have done something differently or dressed differently, and now, over 20 years later, our children are still being taught don't get raped over don't rape. When I was 20, I was with a man I considered a trusted friend. He had tried to get between my sheets before, but had always stopped and respected when I said no. Only this time... He ensured that couldn't happen. A few months later, a couple weeks before I turned 21, I met a man at a bar. When I awoke naked and alone the next morning, I didn't remember anything beyond talking to him, but he had left his purple and green marks all over my body, from my left eye to my shins and his bloodied briefs on my bedroom floor. It's not easy for me to trust men, because every time I leave my home, I wonder how many times I will be harassed before I return, because every time I leave my home, I fear I won't make it back in safety, as my mother expected herself to, as I expected myself to, as we should have. It's not easy for me to trust men, so men, please, when I do give you my trust, do not violate it and let these statistics grow. Let us work to diminish them together."
0: Cold Comfort is an ice cream store with a conscience. Crafted by ethically paid employees using local, organic, fair trade, and natural ingredients, Cold Comfort offers high-quality, guilt-free ice cream. Ice cream is for everyone. They make dairy-free, vegan, and sugar-free options, as well as gluten-free ice cream sandwiches. Now that's some ice cream I can get behind. Find out more at www.coldcomfort.co.